What's going on, guys? How are we? Good? You're all nervous of what I'm going to say already, aren't you? Well, first things first, go Buffs. Go Buffs, right? If you are a Nebraska fan, I apologize. I promise I got no dog in the fight here, right? It's just, but I will say this, Colorado people, um, there's a lot of red in that stadium yesterday. Got some some work to do here. Um, If you are a guest, welcome. If you're a guest and you're a Nebraska fan, I hope I didn't just lose you. But um, we're really glad that you're here. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say welcome to LifeBridge. Whenever you're ready, I would love to get a chance to meet you. Whether I'm usually hanging out in the lobby after the service, just come grab me, say hey. I'd love to also see you at First Step. We, we do those at random times during the year. You can check our website out to find out when the next First Step is. It's basically just 10 to 15 other people that are new to LifeBridge. I'm going to try to give you like a high-level view of the church, what's going on, and what steps are, are you can take to get connected. We usually do that between this service and the 11 o'clock service just for about 30 minutes. One of the best ways to get connected, I just want to reinforce what Hannah already said, is to sign up for Rooted. Whether you are here for the very first time or you've been at LifeBridge for years, whether you've been following Jesus for years or this is your first time in church, Rooted is for everyone. It's a 10-week experience. You can sign up on the website or we got a table in the lobby. There's people out there that can answer any questions you've got. I would highly encourage you to sign up for Rooted. I just got done with it. It was fantastic. Kelly's doing it this next month. Man, I really encourage you to do that. But before we get rolling today, uh, like Hannah said, today we're going to talk about some content that's more in the PG-13 camp. So if you do have kids with you, I would encourage you to check out our kids ministry first and foremost because the kids ministry does a really good job working hard every single week to create an environment that is tailored specifically to your kids. There is no childcare at LifeBridge. It is all ministry designed for their age level. So if today's your first time, you can head outside. We've got a kiosk right out in the middle of the lobby. There's some people there, volunteers, that can show you how to check your kid in, and then they'll show you where to go and take them to their particular age group's room. But in here, today, we are in part four of our series called Blueprint, where we're just looking at some of the different aspects of relationships that, that are critical in order for them to thrive. Like, um, all different kinds of things. Now, we could talk all day long with what we think is needed for a relationship to grow and to thrive. There have been books written on this topic that could fill libraries, but that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in what God has to say about these things. Like today, we're going to hit on a tough topic. Like this is a sensitive topic that people have very, very strong opinions about. People have strong opinions about what God's word says or, or what it doesn't say preconceived notions about what God's all about when it comes to this particular topic. So we've been using this analogy of a blueprint of a house to really set up what relationships look like. 
when you look at the different house or rooms and features in a house, what's needed for these relationships, our relationships, to thrive? What's needed to be avoided so that they don't stall out? Like we've talked about the foundation, right? You gotta have a good foundation in any house. If you don't have a solid foundation that you're built on, you're gonna have some serious expensive problems you're gonna have to deal with. Our relationships are no different. Like we gotta look at what kind of foundations we're actually building our relationships on. Or maybe what about the front door? It's an important part of any house, right? Well, it holds the same value for our relationships. Who or what you let into your life will shape the kind of person that you are. Then what about the kitchen table? It's a staple in any house, right? Lots of good things and cool things happen at the kitchen table. It's one of the best places for connections to happen and relationships to grow. So in our relationships, like what are our kitchen tables and are we being intentional with them in order to create those strong connections? And then today, we're gonna hit on the bedroom. It's another important room in any house. And this is part of the reason why I would encourage you to have your kids in the kids ministry. I do not want to initiate a conversation between you and your kids on the way home today that you're not ready to have. However, on the other side of the coin, if I preach this well today, you never know. We, we could see a spike in the nursery nine months from now. You just don't know how it goes, right? I'm trying to set you up. But seriously, like... Oh, why do we gotta talk about sex? Like why? Especially in church. Because this is a sensitive topic. It's become highly politicized. There's baggage and pain that even can be attached to sex. So can we just talk about something a little bit different? Can we talk about something a little, a little bit easier? Well, the reason we're talking about sex is because it's part of real life. And we wanna we want talk about real life things here and we wanna be real when we talk about them. The reason we gotta talk about sex is because the way we view sex will dictate how we practice it. And how you practice, pursue, or even abstain from sex will affect your relationships. Now there are so many different discussions that have to go on with this topic. There are probably more questions than there are discussions. We can't possibly cover all of them in one day, but what I wanna do, because we can't get to everything, I just wanna get an overarching perspective of sex. Like not for me, not from me, not from somebody else. I, I want to hear what God has to say. Amen. Like because this has become such a sensitive subject, because it's political, because it's even been hostile at times, all of that stems from our perspective. If we've got any kind of problem with sex, it almost always starts with our perspective. So because of that, I don't want to hear my opinion. You don't want to hear my opinion. We don't want to hear somebody else's. Let's hear what God has to say. So if you got a Bible with you, open it up to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, that's in the New Testament, back third of your Bible, right after the book of Romans, right before 2 Corinthians. Funny how that works out. But before we get into any of that, this is what you got to know first and foremost. We all have to understand this. God is not surprised by sex. Not at all. He's only surprised the way we view it and how we tend to use it. God created and designed sex. It was his idea. That's a really important fact to remember. We cannot overlook that. It wasn't like God created Adam and Eve. All right, good, all right, I got Adam and Eve here. Created Adam and Eve, went over to the kitchen, kitchen to get a chicken sandwich, got a sandwich, came back, and was like, whoa, what are you doing? Stop that, don't touch her like that. It's not what happened. Just picture that for a second, right? That's really awkward. I thought that was really funny when I thought of it this week. I'm going to laugh at my own jokes. That's okay. 
Uh, that's what happens when you get a microphone. You can laugh at yourself. Anyway, that's not what happened. But if we're honest, it can be easy to think that that's something, that, that version is somewhat true. That that's how God views sex. Or the other side of the coin is we think that sex is for us and from us. God has nothing to do with it. We don't need to hear from him on this. If either one of those perspectives is how we view things, man, that's got some dangerous consequences attached to it. Not only did God create and design sex, and we should thank him for that, but he also created it with purpose. I don't know about you, but I would much rather hear about the intent and purpose behind a creation or a design from the person who created and designed it. Not some random person, I don't want to hear about their, their opinions and ideas and philosophies around that same creation that they just enjoy. Let me say it this way. Would you rather hear about the design and the purpose behind the iPhone from Steve Jobs? Or would you rather hear about, hear about it from some random guy that works 20 hours a week at the Apple store? Like no offense to the guy working at the Apple store, he's totally fine, but... Don't you think there's a chance that he might leave something out of the original purpose and intent, just maybe even aspects of it, or he interprets, interprets the purpose based on his own perspective, his own experiences, and his own opinions. Now, he's totally entitled to his opinions, and his experiences are real, absolutely. But those don't change the intent and purpose behind Steve Jobs' design. You tracking with me? God created sex, we should thank him for it. But our own experiences and opinions do not change his purpose and intent behind it. So let's get his perspective. First Corinthians gives some of that, that perspective. And here's some context. This is a letter written to Christians in a city called Corinth in the first century. Corinth was a, originally a Greek city, then it was conquered, destroyed, and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar. So it's got a heavy Greco-Roman influence in it. Corinth in the first century was a major economic player, huge economic player. It was a crucial port city, lots of things going on in Corinth. Depending on who you talk to, Corinth was either infamous or it was famous. In the first century, Corinth was very much well-known, not for the economics, it was very much well-known for sex. So in first century Roman culture, which Corinth is in the middle of, this is how it was viewed. Men were to take wives, so that they could, ha they could have legal heirs to inherit property. That was the point of marriage. Procreation so that a man could have legitimate legal heirs to pass down property and carry on the family name. That was it. Sometimes there was political reasons attached to marriage, but by and large, that was the entire point. When it came to sex, well, sexual pleasure was to be found outside of the marriage. Prostitution was not only allowed and accepted, it was actually encouraged and celebrated depending on what historian you read. In Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And if, if you remember your high school Greek mythology, she was the goddess of fertility and love. Prostitutes would work that temple as an act of worship and offering to Aphrodite. There were sailors and travelers constantly coming into Corinth, Corinth because it's a port city. Many of them were coming in there just to take care of and take advantage of the sexual reputation that the city had. There was this, this saying throughout the first century that just went like this. You're playing the Corinthian. Playing the Corinthian. That was throughout the Roman world. It was just a reference to having sex. It was kind of like saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's a similar vein of that. Corinth had a reputation of being very, 
very promiscuous. And that cultural influence had undoubtedly started to affect and influence Christians in that city. So 1 Corinthians is, is unpacking these two different perspectives that are going on. Look at verse 1. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So this is the Apostle Paul writing this letter in 1 Corinthians. And he's writing this letter and says, hey, you guys sent me a letter. You had a lot of questions. So he starts answering their questions. The question at the top of their list was about sex. Now, regarding the question you asked me, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, completely countercultural in Roman times, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come back together so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, these Christians in Corinth, they are living in a highly sexualized society where some of the philosophy and practice of sex had now gotten into the church. Now inside the church, there's this conflicted tension about sex. Does that sound familiar at all? Like they're like, Paul, we got so many questions about sex. Can, can you help us out, bro? We don't know which way to go because we're, we're being pulled in different directions. So Paul, help us out. Promiscuity and prostitution, yes or no? Sexual fulfillment can't actually happen inside a marriage, Paul, right? Or, or can it? Or maybe, maybe that's the opposite. Maybe, maybe sex is the problem altogether. And Paul, we should just completely ignore and, and not have sex, right? That, that's the answer. These are some of the questions that they're asking. And if we're honest, they sound very similar to the questions and opinions we have today. They're just worded differently. In 2019, we'd say it like this. My sex life is about me and it's for me. It's none of your business. Or my sexuality is my identity. Or sex is no big deal. There's no consequences to it other than, other than pregnancy and, and you might get a disease, but it's 2019, we can take care of that. These are the polarizing perspectives that, that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 7. And if we're honest, they exist and are very much alive and well today. Understanding them and shifting through them, clearing them up is step one to having the same perspective on sex as the designer of it. So the Christians in Corinth, they're, they're wrestling with two schools of thought. Here, here's the school, school number one, hedonism, which is basically this, just seeking after pleasure. The second one is asceticism, which is the exact opposite of pleasure. One says do whatever you want. The other says do nothing at all. Both of these both of these sexual ethics are dangerous because they're both against the design and they both bring in pain. One of them says, do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. The other dangerous sexual ethic says that sex is bad. Like hedonism says, hey, you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, and you should because your body is your body and your body is just a body. It's morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with it. Having sex is just like uh, taking care of a physical need. When you're hungry, you eat. When you want to have sex, you have sex. That's all it is. As long as the adults are consenting, there's no implications. There's no consequences to it. The danger in this view 
many dangers, but the biggest one is this, is that it dehumanizes people that are having sex. It just animalizes people because it removes the soul from the equation. Hedonism focuses on the body but completely ignores the soul. The other side of the equation, asceticism, says that we shouldn't have sex at all. Yikes. That one scares me too. It says that, you know what, the body is actually morally corrupt. It's, it's a train wreck. That even in the context of marriage, sex is extremely dangerous, it's a sign of weakness, and it's potentially very sinful. This also dehumanizes people. It removes another aspect of our humanity. It removes our body from the equation. The body and the soul are both a part of sex. You cannot remove one or the other. You can't. Hedonism is kind of like um, going to a big city and thinking that every sexual fantasy is fulfilled and celebrated. That's hedonism. Asceticism sounds like 1955 small farm town church. Both are dangerous. Both are wrong. Both go against the outline of sex throughout scripture. And that may rub you the wrong way. I get it. Like, because a lot of times whenever we have a personal ethic that's shaped by culture or it's shaped by a religious ethic that's actually wrong... Well, then when you hear this, God's word can actually make you cringe, can offend you too. But hear me on this. There is nothing in God's word that is meant to rob you joy or pleasure. Nothing. Only things that are meant to deny you pain. Nothing in God's word is meant to hurt you or take things away from you. It's actually not taking freedom away. It's actually there to give you more freedom, to give you more enjoyment. Let me set it up this way. Let's just say we go camping. And uh, at the end of the night, you, you create a big campfire in the camp. Who doesn't love a good campfire, right? Warms up everybody, gives light to the camp, cook over it, s'mores, sit around, talk as friends. Campfires are great. Now, how crazy would it be if you looked at that campfire and said, you know what? This fire inside this fire pit, this is no good. The fire pit is constraining the fire. It's, it's not letting it be free. It's taking the joy away from it. So we need to get it out, out of this fire pit. We just need to let the fire out. What would happen? Forest fire, right? Bad news. What would be equally as crazy would be to say, you know what? Hey, we've got this fire pit. And even though that a fire is, a, is permissible in this, it's, ex it's acceptable. It's actually encouraged to have a fire in this fire pit. We're not going to do it. Because what if the fire gets out? Well, now you're just missing out on the awesomeness of that campfire in the fire pit where it was designed and encouraged to be. They're both crazy. One invites real danger in when you think a fire is constricted and let it out. The other, no fire at all? Man, that's equally as dangerous. It's equally as damaging. Now, you might not believe this or you might want to push back on this because of a personal ethic or a cultural ethic or a religious ethic that's outside of God's word that you've grown up with. But hear me on this again. When it comes to any topic, sex is a great example. Sex is one of the best examples. There is nothing in God's word that's meant to rob you of joy, only things to deny you pain. So when our culture says, hey, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, because you're free and we want to be as free as possible... And when religion says in an attempt to over-spiritualize things and be pious, says don't have sex at all except to procreate, so now you won't have the bondage of guilt, aka let the fire out of the fire pit, or don't have a fire at all or put it out, both of those are dangerous. 
Both of those don't give you any kind of freedom at all. In fact, they both give you bondage. One promises freedom of the body, but ignores the bondage it brings to the soul. The other denies something that God created for you to enjoy in the context in which he created it. So in our series on relationships, we could say it like this. Uncontrolled fire will burn your relationships. And no fire at all will freeze your relationships out. So here's the truth. And this is, this is groundbreaking, all right? You ready for this? Sex is good. Sex is good. If there was a time to say amen, that was it, guys. That was it. Okay? Sex is good, it's good, and it's good and it's enjoyed in the context and purpose that God created it. In, in the context, the purpose right here in 1 Corinthians 7, the purpose is for enjoyment and service. God has given us sexual passions and desires and they're meant to be enjoyed, but a lot of times we miss on where they're meant to be enjoyed. Here's the biblical view. Sex is great and enjoyed when it's not about submission, but when it's about service. That's the key. Verse three says this, husbands should fulfill their wife's sexual needs, but the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority of her body over her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Here's what this is not saying. This is not saying that your body is the property of your spouse, not what it's saying. Guys, you don't own your wife's body. You don't. She doesn't have to do whatever you want whenever you want. Not required to do that. Ladies, you don't own your husband's body. He doesn't have to do whatever you want, whenever you want. What this is laying out right here, what Paul is laying out is that sex is a way to serve your spouse. That it's a husband and wife pursuing not their own needs first, but pursuing their spouse's needs. And this is counterintuitive. This flies in the face of our culture because sex is about self-fulfillment. Self-satisfaction, I gotta get what I want. I need my needs taken care of, my needs emotionally and physically. And if that's our practice, if that's our philosophy, then you're never gonna enjoy sex the way it was meant to be enjoyed, even though that you think that you are. And eventually that's gonna break your relationships. Because when anything's just about me, that never works out, right? Whatever kind of relationship, whether that's with a friend or your spouse, if it's self-seeking, if it's selfish, Man, a relationship can't thrive like that. It can't grow. It can't last. Being selfish with sex is no different. The biblical view is this, that when a marriage has a self-seeking purpose, it's going to distort and twist the sex life and eventually break it. Genesis 2.24 says that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's talking about sex. That's what it means. And then the two are united as one. That's why it is never just physical. It's never, ever just physical. The physical act is illustrating the spiritual and emotional act of becoming one, which is happening at the same time. So when those who are one start acting like they are two, meaning I'm thinking about myself or I'm, I'm thinking about serving myself, not my spouse, it's gonna break yourself, it's your sex life, and it's gonna break the relationship eventually. Sex was never meant to be selfish. It's always been a means of serving your spouse. The way you love your spouse is by serving your spouse. Now, there's so many questions that come up with this topic, so many, so many questions like, hey, 
you know, what's okay, what's not okay. How often should we have sex? Every guy in the room is hoping I talk about that. <laughs> you know you are. Don't I like husbands? Don't leave me hanging up here. All those questions are legitimate. There's so many questions, so many questions. But what scripture lays out is that we have these sexual passions and Paul is laying out a picture of a beautiful marriage where those passions are exercised and they're exercised regularly. When inside this fire pit that God's created, man, he gives husbands and wives a lot of freedom to do what they want. And how often? As long as we're clear on the purpose. The purpose is not to serve myself. The purpose is to serve my spouse. That's the purpose. So think about it this way. This is really what the Bible lays out, is that in a marriage, each partner should not be concerned with getting sexual pleasure. They should be much more concerned with giving it. That means the greatest sexual pleasure is actually seeking the pleasure of your spouse. But if you're just trying to seek your own pleasure, your own fulfillment, your own satisfaction, man, you're not free. You're never going to be free. You're still in bondage and you're in bondage to yourself. I got to get what's mine. I got to get my needs taken care of. So I'm going to go look for it over here. So I'm going to look for it over here. Well, I didn't get it there. I'm going to go over here now. You're constantly going to be looking for it. You're constantly not going to have that need met when it's about you. But when you look outside yourself, people are free that are free. They can look outside themselves. Truly free people help and serve other people, right? Sex is no different. People who are free don't use other people for their own needs. People that are free need other people less. And when you need other people less, you're free to love people more. So in all of this, what's the application? Do I honestly need to answer that question, right? Like we're sermon on sex. What's the application? Should be self-explanatory, people. Like, I'm not drawing a picture. Not. The eight o'clock service laughed at that and you guys didn't, come on. Here's, here's a good question. Here's the application. Ask yourself this, am I being selfish or am I being serving with sex? Like, am I trying to take care of my own needs? Is it about me? Am I being self-seeking or am I, am I using sex as a way to serve my spouse, which in turn actually brings you more enjoyment and it strengthens your relationship? Like have this conversation with your spouse, be honest with each other, open up and be real. Hey, like, do you think that, that I'm being selfish with sex or am I serving you? Have that conversation together and then have the empathy and the patience to listen to what the other has to say. Hey, ask them this, how can I serve you? And watch what that does to your sex life. Sex was never meant to be something you hold over your spouse's head. It's never a tool that you use to get something else from your spouse that you want. If you do that, that's another way of being selfish. That's very dangerous. Don't do that. We're here to seek and serve our spouse. Watch what that will do to your relationship. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he, he says this. I think this is so well said. He says, sex in a marriage is like oil to an engine. Without it, the friction between all the moving parts will burn out the motor. Without joyful, loving sex, the friction in a marriage will bring about anger, resentment, hardness, and disappointment. Rather than being the commitment glue that holds you together, it can become a force to divide you. Never give up working on your sex life. There's the application, husbands and wives. Never give up. So there's so many questions and discussions that need to come up. And, and I bet there's many of you who are thinking, hey, why didn't we talk about this? 
or can we talk about this subject around sex or, or I have this question about it that we're not getting to or this brings up some pain when we talk about it. There's so many different things I totally get it. And over time, we'll get to all of it. But for right now, we gotta know this, that the purpose God created and designed sex for was to be thoroughly enjoyed by a husband and wife where each partner is seeking the pleasure of the other as a way to serve them. Like you do that, it's gonna bring you closer together. You do that, it's gonna strengthen your marriage. You do that, you are gonna find far more sexual fulfillment and enjoyment than our culture can ever, ever promise us. Okay? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of sex. It's something that you created, that you designed, that you said it was good in the garden. And then like everything else that got broken by the fall, there's, there's pain that goes with it. There's different views and perspectives and practices, many of which you never created or you didn't design. Not because you're trying to deny us something, but actually because you know it leads to pain and it leads to destruction and you love us like your kids. And she wants us to avoid that. God, I pray that you would give us your view and your perspective on sex and that we would practice it and pursue it as a means to serve our spouse the way that you designed it. And from that, we get great enjoyment. We expect that from you. You know what? You'll give it to us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.